And I'm not a really good American because I like to form my own opinions. Huh? What? There's tons of examples of corporate greed, inequality, and disregard for the environment that make people wonder if markets are evil. And they are. Maybe Lisa's right about America being the land of opportunity, and maybe it yields has a point about the machinery of capitalism being oiled with the blood of the workers. Where it's like, hey, wake up, liberals. You can't always do, uh, sometimes you gotta, uh, you know, uh, but that's a, that's that's actual quote from Karl Marx. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. Um... If I were to ever start a country with a communist government, wink, wink, wait 12 years. Men are seduced by communists, women so much so that they deem communism nice. Communists murdered mostly the Nazis. Bottom-up horizontal connection, sharing at all levels is key. Describing is anarchy. Are you an anarchist? You mean, am I a member? An anarchist group, yes. Anarchists have a group? I believe so, sure. What kind of garbage is that? Oops, my anarchy symbol. Okay, welcome to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. Alone in studio, co-hostless. Um, but hey, that's uh, the difference between me, unemployed, uh, not so broke, but my life is my activism versus my co-host, who is very much a professional, uh, up-and-coming Jen Azir. But anyways, this is the Three Left Show, your leftist reading hour, as people have different styles of learning. Uh, some people, as the internet is incessant in telling me, that some people just don't like to read or don't want to read. Whatever, no judgments, simply a matter of preference slash biology, perhaps. We know there's evidence for that. Thus, why, you know, why there's all these articles, there's all this reading to do, but you don't want homework. Listen to something instead. I got you covered. Three left show. Uh, the three lefts for, stand for uh, socialism, anarchism, and ecology. Um, but it's a multi-tendency left-wing show representing different tendencies because really uh, separation is an illusion. Uh, that's kind of the theme of this episode. Before the year ends, this year of 2020, which is, you know, as everyone has a comment about how this is the big year, Perhaps it will have significance someday. Maybe it's next year that will be the significant one. It never, you know, we could, we could tell when a year wasn't significant. Not because we were doing more or less, or, uh, because things are happening to us. It's always a matter of what things are happening to you, not what you're doing to other things, right? Uh, but anyway, so I'm, I'm gonna wrap up a series, so to speak. Um, never really finished. I never know how many parts something will have until it's complete, right? Nothing's really complete. But let's just say, uh, part three of Left Wing Culture War. Throughout the year, I've done two other episodes. Part one, which was in the spring, more springtime, was more about the past, uh, how and why some leftists split, mostly focusing on Marxist-Leninists or Stalin versus Trotsky, Soviet Union versus anarchism or Soviet Union versus America, the beginnings of the Cold War and the suppression of leftism in America ever since. Uh, despite the, you know, bursting of revolt, uh, with the new left, you know, you needed a new left because the old left were old <laughs> and passe, or why were they? Because they were completely suppressed. And you need a new left that took new forms, the form of counterculture, the form of 
well, look, we're not trying to overthrow the government, but we're really just trying to survive it, as you know, the anti-war movement was keen on saying. Part two, which was more in the late summer, was more left versus liberal. We talked about turfs, people, you know, leftists who don't um, on the side of trans rights and don't see solidarity with them and see conflict there. Swerfs, same with sex workers. There are, you know, radical feminists that do not neither represent the interests of or care to represent the interests of women who perform sex work, either because they have to, because of capitalism, or because they want to, because it's actually, you know, some their form of empowerment. Wearing a burqa is empowering. Wearing um, less is empowering. It doesn't matter what the material is. The principle is choice and freedom and autonomy, bodily autonomy. The rest of that episode was also talking about Green Party conflicts and the imperialists uh, that exist on the left, and or non-anti-imperialists, rather. Uh, double negative, yes, confusing, but I want to draw a distinction between those, because there are people on the left that aren't anti-imperialists, but it doesn't mean they're pro-empire. It doesn't mean they're pro-war. In fact, they're very anti-war, but they're not anti-empire. These are, take the form of progressive Democrats that say, look, I'm just against dumb wars. I'm against bad wars. Which is to say, I'm still for war. I'm still for using military action. I'm still for funding the military ten times over while letting social services and society degrade um, and keeping the U.S. government as decentralized as possible, not fighting against that. Hey, it's our Constitution. Constitution makes the U.S. the most decentralized government in the world, despite the uh, protestations that think government's only getting bigger and more centralized and central power, dictatorship so on and so forth. But meanwhile, all the states have to make their own plan for how to combat a pandemic, as if that is a functional strategy. It is not. It is a complete another failure. And this is where the American system is kind of our, you know, every strength becomes a weakness. This strength of our decentralized nature and, and all that has now become a complete hampering weakness, which we will be feeling for the rest of the decade, at least, at least. Assuming that every decade there will be a pandemic like this. And no, no vaccine is really going to fix it or make things back to normal. Neither will an election. But hey, that's a different rant. So part three, which will be this episode, already a bit into it, is kind of leftisms today and how just like kind of in the past that it was more egos and attitudes kind of getting in the way more than a conflict of positions that um, it won't be really dis uh, I won't really explore it so much. This episode is more about exploring the differences. And then in the rest, when, when we're doing the left wing strategy tour, which we did an episode of last week, we will be discussing or we'll be covering various stories where a Marxist Leninist, is discussing dual power, and then an anarchist is discussing dual power, and how there are all these strategies that every leftist tendency, every little leftist subculture, little group, little cult, is in fact for. And it's like, well, why can't we all do these things together? Or concurrently? Why do we see the separation in that, like, we're still different teams, or we won't work with you because you're somehow different than us? These differences are illusions, or could be, or they are real, but they could be overcome with some discussion. Similarly, when a labor organizer talks about making the mass of Americans that vote Trump or are racist less racist, it comes from engaging them, engaging them in asking questions, very simple questions like, yes, immigration lowers your wages. 
But why and who does it benefit? It benefits not so much the immigrant, but the boss, right? In the example of a interview I listened to, to a, one who organized 80% of nurses in Philadelphia, how there was the bosses were pitting, you know, white nurses or, you know, um, established nurses versus new uh, immigre Filipino nurses. When talking about their issues, they would say, oh, my issue is that these Filipino nurses are not speaking English. And, and, and thus, Trump rhetoric kind of stuff, or the Trump or whatever. And then asking the question like, okay, oh, yeah, and why why is the boss bringing in these Filipino nurses? Oh, because they work cheaper than I do. And, they're, and that drives your wages down, right? So it's the boss that's the problem, not the Filipino nurses. So why not? organize or be in the same union with the Filipino nurses. Let's work together. And they do, and they win, um, and still fight, and there's still contradictions of like, you know, can the bosses really relent at the end of the day? That's what's occurring here in Albany where the nurses have organized a major commercial hospital. It's still a nonprofit, but they make millions of dollars, and they're still a huge corporation at the end of the day. The Managers are not relenting and refusing to negotiate a contract, and it's been three years since they've started that. But it's really like they're kind of questioning what to do, because like when the boss basically says no, what are you left to do? Well, you still want to go to work. You still want to serve people, especially during a pandemic. You can't just go on strike as a nurse. But you also want to be paid well and have benefit, not just benefits but basic human dignities because that's what the fight's really about freedom and human dignity okay so let's get into some of the articles i have because i went on a little tangent there with real organizing that will be covered in later installments organizing engagement that'll also be my wrap-up so i like bookending you know an episode with kind of the action item or like not just to leave you with things are bad or people disagree, what are you going to do? Because if there's anything I hate more, I can go on a tangent here, but if there's anything, I, if I have a hate for anything, right? It's not the Trump voter. It's not Trump, of course. If you listen to this show, you know that I don't blame him as a person or any particular person for anything. But institutionally speaking, the thing that I hate the most, that makes me the most angry and upset, like yell at the radio, is... When uh, and it started, you know, a, t- a decade ago, um, college or late college, it's 2011, 2012, and uh, or you know, I'm listening to, mm, to name drop Alan Chartok talking to the various leaders here in New York: Andrew Cuomo, Thomas DiNapoli, the controller, the Attorney General, various leadership, the leadership in particular, right? Because when it comes to American democracy, because it's decentralized, and you have to notice that. That when you say the system's corrupt, it's not like you have to buy every legislator. No, and that's actually how it perpetuates. That there are many legislators that are honest, decent, um, and this includes Republicans in, in New York. Like they, they believe what they believe. They're not actually sold out. They're not just serving corporate interests at every step of the way, but they, you know, they have beliefs that, you know, you can argue about from a place of good faith. Maybe. But otherwise, when you point out a problem, maybe they'll actually say, oh yeah, there's a problem. Disagree about what to do about it. But otherwise, uh, they're in good faith, right? Who who are not in good faith? The people at the top, leadership. They're on, they, they interview the most, so you hear the most from them. But the usual tenor is we have issues, but we can't do anything about it. 
over and over. It's the same thing. They've been, they said it a decade ago. They said it five years ago. They said it when Trump was elected and they're saying now that Trump has lost. We have issues. Um, you know, localities, um, are dependent on property taxes. Uh, even though we put, we put in a cap on raising property taxes. So localities cannot raise them to make up for the lack of business from the pandemic. And so there, there go, there's going to be problems. They're going to all have gaps. And the state does not have the capacity to solve this. That is what they say. And it's not just, re, you know, today. They've been saying it their entire careers. There are issues, but we can't do anything about it. And it's not just on the radio or in interviews on media. No, if you go lobby them directly, if you're outside their office, it will all come down to, yes, there are problems, but there's nothing we can do about it. It makes me so angry because they are supposedly the ones in power. But capitalism is. And that's why even when you're at the top, you can honestly project hopelessness and helplessness. And your job is then to simply do damage control every year in, year out. And when it comes to pot, like legislation, like say, legalizing pot in New York, which like maybe will happen next year. It's still, their role is to damage control, to blunt the effects of any legislation to not rock the status quo too much. Because there are problems, like the drug war, but in, you know, method, you know, in, in action, we can't do anything about it. And they're telling, they're t- saying that to everyone including mostly themselves. I didn't go on that tangent for any particular reason. It's just something that was on my mind. To shift gears back to what I was supposed to do is let's cover what libertarian socialism, so the differences of left-wing tendencies. First, the tendency of most anarchism today uh, or bottom-up socialists, usually go by libertarian socialists, uh, via the Black Rose Federation which is, again, one of those more like less organization, more social club, because joining them is a obstacle course of sorts, and you kind of need to know somebody to know somebody. You need to be in the clique already. At least that's the experience of some some people around me, other anarchists even, who have said, yeah, I tried joining them. They were really tough to join. Like they just didn't want new members, (laughs) which sounds absurd, right? But besides them, the ideas are what's important. And that's what I'm exploring right now. The ideas of you have these different tendencies. And so I like this one. So it's their, it's their general introduction to libertarian socialism, their ideology, their worldview, or their strategies of action. And it's called socialism will be free or it will not be at all. So their general, like almost a FAQ also frequently asked questions. Let's see. This was written. So it's written by an author, Arthur Pye. And it was published two years ago, so not too long ago. Socialism is officially a buzzword again. According to a recent poll, 44% of U.S. millennials prefer socialism to capitalism. And even mainstream Democrats are starting to call themselves socialists, referring to the squad. As one headline put it, socialism is so hot right now. Used to describe everything from Bernie Sanders to Stalinist Russia, there are a few words which inspire such varied and contradictory meanings. Like most buzzwords, socialism's true meaning has been obscured by its popularity. 
But what does socialism actually mean? What does it look like in practice? Here's theirs. At its core, socialism is the idea that resources and institutions in a society should be managed democratically by communities. Whereas under capitalism, economic and political power is concentrated in the hands of the rich. You know, and they only have to buy the leadership. They don't have to buy the whole legislator or the whole president. Socialists fight for a society in which the means of producing and distributing goods and services and stuff is held more in common for democratic self-management. This article will make the case that libertarian socialism represents the most thorough and consistent embodiment of core socialist principles, or leftist, or humanist principles even, liberal principles. In essence, libertarian socialism is a politics of freedom and collective self-determination, so it combines freedom, individual freedom, collective, self-action, and determination. These things are not in conflict. Realized through revolutionary struggle, meaning you actually fight. Non-violently and violently, but that depends on the person. That's called diversity of tactics. Part one is that's, you know, socialism is freedom from capitalism. So usually anarchists, or particularly Black Rose, define things in terms of negative freedom, freedom from things. Not only the freedom to, they have both. Uh, but first, uh, socialism versus capitalism kind of thing. In order to survive under capitalism, those without property, or those who start without it, or where maybe they lose their property from banks, bank foreclosure, are forced to rent themselves to property owners to be exploited. This relationship between haves and have-nots forms the very basis of our society. This is also called a class exploitation. In such a society, power flows directly from one's relationship to property, and this makes one's class position. Right, So it's not whether or not you're Jewish or black or not or or what religion you follow. There are black capitalists, there are Jewish capitalists. And this is uh, there's a lot of class consciousness, but there are forms of it, subcultures, where the class consciousness is there. There's like there's an awareness that there are classes, haves and have nots, of course. But then there seems to be a piece missing on identifying those classes. This is usually filled in with Marxist theory or queer or intersectional. So if you follow queer theory, it's like, oh, what defines have and have nots is heteronormative versus homonormative or, or, you know, deviance from the heteronormative. You know, the, the man, woman, uh, makes marriage and stuff. And you have, and it's only for kids. Or if it's feminist, then it's men versus women. And those are the classes. Those are the only, not the only classes, but those are the main classes, right? And that's the difference between intersectional versus having intersectional means you take all these theories. Marxist meaning it's about economics, about those who have and have not property versus have or have not types of genitalia or what kind of sex you like or gender you express. These things all exist and they matter, but they all matter concurrently at the same time. So that's what we're going with here. But if you don't have that, those analyses, those theories, you kind of end up with, and this has been observed by many, many others, and it's not particular, any particular group of Americans, but if you don't have that class now, so okay, there's have and have-nots, and you try to tease out the pattern of what all the haves have in common. And if you're really lazy, or not lazy, you make a mistake and you notice more of them are Jewish. And before you know it, you're making really, you're making anti-Semitic conspiracies about how Jews control the media and stuff. Because you see a pattern of all these, you know, these elites and this 
a good portion of them are Jewish, or a section of them are, in out of proportion with the um, to the whole population. All right, white supremacists, Nazis, neo Nazis do the same thing with crime. More blacks are arrested or persecuted for crimes. Uh, and the stat is 1350. 13 percent of the population commit half a crime, referring to black people. Of course, this is racist. Why? Because it's missing the fact that why are more black people arrested for crime? So are they actually committing more crime? No. Crimes come in all shapes and sizes. And our justice system has a choice in how, who it goes after, what neighborhoods are patrolled the mo- most, and what property is protected versus others. To move on, uh, as Helen Keller put it, the few own the many because they possess the means of livelihood. The means of production, as it were. Virtually nothing happens in a capitalist society unless it makes a rich person even richer. By its very nature, capitalism not only feeds on capitalist class exploitation and wealth inequality, but it also requires endless growth and expansion of the economy. Now, there are exceptions to this, let's say NASA. But NASA developed technologies that also made many, many corporations rich. So you could say uh, there, there needs to be acceptance that there is a symbiosis between state spending and private profit-making. This comes in the form, in the modern times, as the public-private partnership. In the golden age, in the 50s and 60s, there seemed to be this kind of uh, least acknowledged separation. But was it really? Socialism versus social democracy. So they're also kind of going through each of the other, like the, the competitors, the other choices of socialism. They're going through each one. You know, So the first choice... If you're not going to have socialism, it must be capitalism, right? Socialists advocate a class struggle against this, eliminating the need for propertyed employing classes and propertyless unemployed people. Uh, workplaces could instead be cooperatively managed, yada, yada. Federations of neighborhoods and, all, and so on and so on. Uh, choice two, social democracy. This vision stands in clear contrast not only to so-called socialist dictatorships in Russia and China, but also the capitalist countries such as Sweden or Norway. Often described as socialist, these societies, but called social democracies, have the same power dynamics as any other capitalist state. Whereas socialism calls for cooperative ownership and direct democracy, social democracies maintain concentrated economic power in the hands of the rich, with a powerful central government regulating social programs, thus leaving the class structure of society unchanged. In this sense, self-described socialists, such as Bernie Sanders, would be more appropriately described as this, the term social democrats, because their end goal is to carry out progressive reforms to make life under capitalism more tolerable. Such reforms can improve people's living and working conditions in important ways, but taxes and cheaper health care do not constitute socialism or this better society or an actual, I mean, it's an improvement, right? But is it the improvement we really need? Socialism is the revolutionary appeal for classless society because it's still you still have these classes. And the usual argument is that social democracy is an interim step, that you start by having a more stronger state that does social programs, and then it can start nationalizing and making co-ops and stuff like that. Some places this happens, but it's not a foregone conclusion, right? you got to look at the evidence of practice of when you put a theory in action. And after mostly a century of social democracies being around, they haven't really gotten less capitalist. In fact, 
in Scandinavia, despite all the rhetoric about them, they have actually been cutting their social welfare programs. And it's quite a big mix. There's still, there's actually more privatization happening there. Is neoliberalism is still happening because they are part of the global economy. And the other part, which isn't mentioned here, is that their wealth and the ability to have social programs still depends on them kind of being the middle class in the world economy. That their wealth and their ability to be a social democracy, and so, so is ours, on the slave labor of those in the formerly colonized. The kids digging the cobalt, cobalt out in Congo for our phones. Isn't libertarian socialism an oxymoron is the usual objection. In the U.S., the word libertarian has taken on the opposite meaning from that of the rest of the world. Strangely, it's become synonymous with advocacy of extreme capitalist individualism, private property rights, the rights of corporations to be free from public oversight. But freedom for the powerful is not freedom at all. Since its origin, libertarianism has been synonymous with anarchism, anti-authoritarian tendencies, the belief that relationships based on denom- domination, hierarchy, and exploitation should be dismantled in favor of freedom and the self-determination. The anarchist and individual can only be free in a community of equals. As a 19th century Russian anarchist Bakunin put it uh, in his political freedom, oh, th- this, is a, this is a quote you may have heard before, political freedom without economic equality is a pretense, a fraud, a lie. It should come as no surprise that libertarians have always been socialists since capitalism is based on class domination. Though the possible confusion is understandable, libertarian socialism is more of a redundancy than a contradiction in terms. Freedom and socialism are indispensable in one and to one another. Without one, the other loses its meaning. So libertarian socialism simply means a free a free version. As the anarchist thinker Rudolf Rocker put it, socialism will be free or it will not be at all. And thus part two, which is freedom from state power. So an anti statist direction. Versus a state socialism. So historically, there have been two general tendencies, which we can roughly describe as from above and from below. Both sides are dedicated to the abolition of capitalism, but they differ crucially in their vision of a future society and how to get there. The key difference between these tendencies is their approach to state power. While state socialists view the state as a means, libertarians will usually see it as a barrier. Socialism from below. Libertarian socialists have long argued that states, or general central governments, are not neutral institutions. They're not instruments or tools to be used um, by one class or another or, you know, set up classlessness. But it's they are set up to protect a ruling minority through a monopoly on violence. Without police, jails, militarized borders, borders you can't cross, and centralized political control, a state is no longer a state. Such a concentration of power is antithetical to democratic self-management, therefore any kind of socialism, any kind of justice. To achieve free socialism, those of us rendered powerless under capitalism must employ ourselves by organizing where we work, uh, where we live, where we go to school, creating popular organizations, or any kind of organization. An organization that is not aiming to take state power or be part of state power, uh, thus no entryism. Eventually, workers can seize their workplaces from bosses. Such structures should be based on the principle of direct democracy, in which people directly participate. Uh, a word on revolution versus regime change. There's no shortcut to justice. Replacing a capitalist ruling class with a self-claimed socialist ruling class is not a social revolution. 
It's but a coup. It's just a regime change. State socialism, therefore, is a contradiction in terms. Now, of course, I would be okay with such a regime change. It would still, I, I like that. It's not like the best thing ever, but it would be something different. And I'm not afraid of different. Because I'm different. <laughs> I'm an outcast. I'm the outcast here. More accurately described as state capitalism, since the general population is still forced to rent themselves to a boss. But in this case, the all-powerful socialist state is the boss. If the core of socialism is collective self-management, then socialism at gunpoint, and by the way, this is something that all socialists agree on, thus the disagreement is in how you do it. Now, you have to kind of look at the track record of the evidence, right? And it could be said, well, we haven't been able to do the experiments yet, and where we do, it is successful. And they mention those later. You know, the Zapatistas and Rojava, these are somewhat successful experiments. And you could say socialist states, Socialism from above has also had many experiments, some successes, some failures, depending on their size or how they went about things. And so how they went about things was depending on the decade that they started. So usually the later that they start, the better they're off they mm, interesting their results. And by interesting, I mean no no genocide, no horrifying kind of things to argue about of like whether and how bad was the death toll and how does it compare to capitalism. Venezuelan government has not, as far as I know, massacred anybody yet. Uh, and they do not need to, because they still have actually freer elections and better counting than we do. They have a better election system. Um, although you have a minority who dispute that election system, oh, guess who they are? It's the capital, it's the rich people. Notice it's no billionaire who's saying that the election system is um, inadequate or um, unfair no, it's it's people who are the you know disenfranchised, whether they be the non-voting masses who are the actual oppressed versus the fake oppressed uh, Trump supporters, who are more their aggrievement is perceived because they're a bunch of uh, mature people. And there's the Russian example, the vanguardist ideology of state socialism was first developed by Lenin. Covered that quite a bit. From and I cover we cover things from their perspective as well. And we will, in fact. And there's other revolutions. Mentioning Rojava and Zapatistas. Part three, freedom from social oppression. Thus solidarity upon privilege. Okay, yeah, so let's let's skip to part four, which is the practice. Building power versus taking power. How do we fight for socialism without getting caught in the traps of liberalism or authoritarianism? Short answer, by building popular power. Or dual power. Popular power is the opposite of concentrated power. It means building self-managed social movements, independent of the institutional left that can win meaningful reforms while laying the groundwork for pushing beyond them. So it's still about fighting for reforms and things that can be done practically uh, with the current state or current institutions, but being separate from them. But of course, then there's, then there's an argument about like, are you kind of doing things separately? Are you separate if you're still lobbying them? Because the lobby is to kind of become an institution yourself to take on the values of interacting with mm, the status quo. Representative politics. So that's a word on representative politics. Representative politics requires that most of us take a back seat by focusing on electing politicians or rallying behind a charismatic leader. We surrender our agency in exchange for promises. In practice, what our representatives are seeking is access to state power, access for some versus all. 
Um, if everyone had actual equal access, we would need a completely different government system. One with direct democracy and participatory forums and budgeting and all that stuff. State can and should be reformed in ways that improve people's lives, but the history of electoral politics shows that they are will defang, demobilize, and create relationships of dependency with social movements rather than strengthen them. If we want transformational change, we have to fight for reforms by building power from below, not by reinforcing it from above. Now, what I've been kind of been leaning into here is that the Black uh, Rose Federation, you know, they've been talking this way for a long time, you know, 20 years, but they haven't really grown and they haven't built this movement of theirs. Many groups talk, 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 and write, 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 but... How much organizing are they really doing? Now, they kind of are, but they're so small and poor that they can't grow really in a way. Like sometimes they're just growing by replacement or they grow, but it really is one workplace at a time. And organizing your local burger joint isn't exactly something that makes the national news. Now, it does make, say, the news the front page of it's going down, and thus I cover that stuff. So I do not want to make anything invisible or say they're not doing anything. But it's also, I wouldn't say successful since they're not making any more waves. You know, otherwise maybe they would have made national news by now. But has BLM, you know, it's not like BLM organized the unrest. The unrest happens and then you have these orgs that come out of them to interact with the status quo, to be the negotiator or the representative of it. Let's see, conclusion. If we take an honest look at the structures and relationships around us today and ask ourselves, could this be more free, equal, democratic? Our answer will almost always be yes. If we take these principles seriously and follow them to the logical conclusion, you may just wake up and discover you're a libertarian socialist. But fear not. Socialism is not a utopian pipe dream. Freedom is possible, and admitting it is the first step of the revolution. Amen, brother. Just meaning to to start thinking that good things can happen. I saw a, a Facebook post that was from, I don't know if it was a poet or something, but it's like his definition of hope was, wasn't that things will work out. It's that whatever happens that we will understand or comprehend what is happening, uh, that will have the worldview, the beliefs, the skills, uh, the meta skills to react intelligently and to process what is happening. That's hope. You know, that's that whatever will happen, that we can deal with it, that we'll be somewhat prepared and not left completely flat footed, that we will be able to change along with the rest of the universe, which is always growing, changing, moving, as our scientific method has divulged. Uh, and that's something that is the more pathetic and angering, is that, you know, when I hear our leaders, like the governor, or comptrollers, or whatever, or senators, they say, we have problems, but there's nothing we can do about it. They're saying that we can't change. That we're stat like statues. And the best kids' media is about characters with, you know, in the media we like are the, the characters of arcs that change. Now, and sometimes what makes a good hero is that they are principled and that they don't change. 
Uh, but usually you have antagonisms that, or villains that are in fact about not changing things. Yeah, so there's some other literary discussion there that happened there. But in response to Black Rose and Libertarian, or the whole, like, all these other ways of doing socialism are problematic. Uh, they're still going to be top-down, authoritarian. It's not going to lead to freedom. point of all this is that it's uh, simplistic to say that because, well, if you go to Cuba, people are kind of free. They're certainly free of having to worry about coronavirus because they have a lot of nurses and they have a good health care system because you had a government that could focus on providing health care to everybody. It made a priority. Same with literacy. Turned a formerly colonized country into a country that is, in fact, modern and functional, if not the most gleaming, but uh, certainly the most ecological. Same with North Korea, too, in fact, oddly enough. You know, very low on the individual freedom and and the social coercion index. <laughs> um, but as far as how, how much how much is the starvation more from the sanctions? Uh, same with Cuba. With uh, we're still blockading them. We're still they're still under sanction, uh, and that's kind of where it's like: is it because of the socialism, or is it the empire that we have and the global system, capitalism? Anyway, uh, here is a video from a YouTuber named Hakim, and he is, as far as I think, an Iraqi Marxist-Leninist. Uh, so when he says, you know, he's a guy, I quote, when, um, when it comes to our elections, it doesn't matter who's president. They still want to bomb his country or it doesn't matter to him. Here's, here's kind of the video is called libertarian socialism with authoritarian characteristics. So let's just play this and I'll react to it. Hi there. Interesting things are going on in the U S currently and more or less worldwide to a lesser extent. As it pertains to the leftist movement, generally though, there's something unsavory that comes up in practically every discussion on theory and tactics. Sadly, a minority of the conversation taking place currently. Talk about socialism, the necessity of revolution, learning from our history, etc., etc., and you'll eventually come across the supposed libertarian-authoritarian divide. You see this nonsense everywhere, on that silly political compass you find online, and if you've been bad this Christmas, then in organizing spaces too. Let me put your mind at ease. This is a meaningless divide. It doesn't materially exist. I'll substantiate this in a second, but I'd also like you to think for yourself as to why that is. Clarifying my own position, well, I'm a Marxist-Leninist. I advocate for state socialism. In order to achieve said socialism, I firmly understand and advocate for the necessity of revolution. Reformism has failed over and over, and Rosa Luxemburg has clarified this position plentifully in her landmark work, Reform or Revolution. Not that you even need to read Luxembourg to see this, a cursory glance through the most basic history of the 20th century proves this beyond any doubt. Regardless, as I advocate for revolution, I also understand that this revolution won't manifest from thin air. I understand that it will logically entail a party, constituted from the working class, with sufficient political will and the support of the people. The work of said party may, we hope, culminate in revolution and the seizure of state power. This will naturally involve some level of violence, probably a lot of it, in fact. No ruling class has ever peacefully given up their own power. Not only this, but I also understand that once state power is seized, we will require all sorts of new organizations to protect the new gains of the working class. I want to jump in here and mention something um, the, from a another YouTube streamer that is not as radical as I, um, but does this thing where, um, and, and this is a general like American mythology, that when we have an election, we're, we're having regime change every four years. 
that every change in president is a change in government. I find this uh, not only a myth, but it's nonsensical. How can you call a change of government just the change in president when you have maybe the same Senate, the same House of Representatives? We have, and it's part of our decentralization to prevent popular power from ever being expressed, that we have staggered elections. In most places in the world, everyone is elected at the same time, not just the president, uh, but the senators or the rep- representatives and parliaments, but all the mayors and all the dog catchers and school boards are all elected at the same time. Here in America, land of the free, we never have a whole government. Because you could have an election that's supposed to be a referendum on the policies of the current government. But guess what? You're only replacing, if not half, but a third of the government. And thus, you're never really changing the government. Because you get for every third that you get rid of, there's another third that's going to be completely intransigent, uncooperative, and pro-status quo. And thus, you're never really changing the status quo. You're only kind of moving that Overton window, that window of possibility, a little bit this way, a little bit that way. Now, this is usually seen as a positive that, you know, like we don't have these upheavals that Europe has, these revolutions that the third world have. We're the most stable, free, democratic. You know, this is what makes us great. But they don't frame it that way. It's framed as we're free and more democratic because we never change our government. I find that hilariously dumb. Or dishonest is the word I want. Not dumb, but dishonest. Um, a lot, a self-lie, a myth, a delusion. So I just wanted to rant about against that for a moment. An internal security apparatus, a military of some size, or nuclear weapons. Certain levels of repression against reactionary sections of the population, landowners, former capitalists, fascists, etc. This will take the form of re-education or more severe measures if necessary. Again, this is something history has proven to be a necessity. By virtue of my advocating of what I mentioned above, I would probably be labeled as an authoritarian. I, of course, reject this label as it's meaningless, nothing worth doing doesn't require at least some level of authority, and social change necessitates violence. Let's flip over to our libertarian friends. With them, there's a little more diversity in views. I'm discussing only those that are Marxists in this case. I'm not. So he kind of he rejects the label authoritarian almost the same way that like you have discussions of human nature that like oh it's our nature to be violent. This will always have violence. So this discussion of a nonviolent society is just a distinction without a difference kind of thing. But let's see if he he goes a little further interested in liberals who think voting for Biden or whatever is what should be done. That's the sort of brain rot that will require its own video. Or reading theory. Please, oh God, read some theory, please. As for libertarian Marxists, logically, they too want revolution, we hope. State or no state, they too think a coordinated effort of the working class with sufficient political will can result in the changes desired, whether they want this in the form of a party, or through trade unionism only, or through a spontaneous uprising with no vanguard, it doesn't matter. The validity of all these positions is a question of theory that can be discussed elsewhere. Logically, they too also understand, to some level, that reactionary trends will exist after the revolution and will require some level of authority to be dealt with. This is the thing, though. Notice how there are no differences. Within quote-unquote libertarian socialists, if 
they understand the fact that there will definitely be reactionary trends and fascists to deal with, they would also definitely understand that this means prisons, this means violence, this means some sort of security apparatus to keep track of these people, and on and on. They understand that we have to seize power in one way or another, and it's evidently clear that voting won't accomplish that. That leaves one option, which also means violence. So why do they consider themselves libertarian? If the goals are the same, and the methods required to achieve them are by their very nature authoritarian, why do they want to separate themselves, or more correctly, designate some other group as different? When we talk about capitalism... So like the, the contradiction he's talking about in libertarian socialism, what, what I just spent a bunch of time, half an hour reading, was like to implement their program, eventually they have to fight somebody. you know. And this comes in practice in black bloc tactics, Antifa, you know, punching, Nazi punching. It becomes unorganized or dis, what was it, uh, undisciplined violence. You know, the difference between, say, the army, or the U.S. military, is that's very disciplined. It's amazingly violent, amazingly authoritarian in its makeup and hierarchical, but it's also very disciplined. And this discipline, this order, seems to create a type of equality, brotherhood, fraternity, solidarity amongst everyone who's part of it. And contrast that with mm, all anarchist tendencies where there's speaking of solidarity, but because there's a lack of discipline of some kind, of order, you can call yourself a federation, but you're really just a bunch of cliques that don't like a lot of other leftist cliques. And what's really diff like what's the difference between you and these tankies online or the Marxist Leninist vanguard party that's this basically uh, the same size and growing at the same rate, which is like, you know, one member a year or you or a replacement rate. You get a new member for every member that has to retire or gets burned out. Back to King. No logical person on the left discusses libertarian capitalism versus authoritarian capitalism. The difference is only in aesthetics. U.S. or French capitalism isn't any more libertarian than Taiwanese or South Korean is authoritarian. Poverty is still violence. Lack of healthcare, workers' rights, unemployment, etc., etc. These are all different avenues of the same authoritarian tendencies. Whether a person is barred from making a living because of a debilitating illness or because of racial discrimination, they're both authoritarian in the end. Within socialism, things aren't any different. We need to change the system we live in. The only methods to do so are, by definition, authoritarian. Libertarian socialists understand this, and they surely aren't pacifists. Yet, to reject so-called authoritarianism, or to label others as authoritarian, despite the fact that both sides of this coin require the same methods to reach their same desired goal, simply makes them out to be just confused. That, or it's a certain measure of fear, a fear of the ruling classes labeling you as authoritarian, despite the fact that literal saints like Eliende and Sankara are demonized by them. Their words mean nothing. In the end, the libertarian-authoritarian split, quote-unquote, is nothing but semantics to protect one's feelings. Unsurprisingly, this is something seen almost exclusively in online Western Marxist spaces. As here, in my own third-world country, people would laugh at you for insinuating your desire for revolution is anything but authoritarian. This is nothing but a byproduct of over a century of red terror that has plunged deep the hatred of all honest and successful revolutionary trends for softer words and softer identification in order to possibly remind this social other or perhaps themselves, that they aren't with those leftists. The one so, like, um, example, with the Black Rose Federation, you know, they, they mentioned the Zapatistas and the Enrojava, right? And I do, too. They're models. They're excellent examples of the kind of world society, new institutions that can be created. 
At the same time, they're using violence. They are fighting a war. The Zapatistas asserted their autonomy and independence by pretty much invading the nearest city and killing, what was it, a few dozen cops? I mean, basically the military, you know, the armed authorities there and took over a number of government buildings. Now, within two days, they were driven out of the city by National Guard and more better equipped troops, but they were fighting a guerrilla war all the way back uh, into the foothills, in the less developed area. And thus they created their own authority with, you know, and they, and they used violence to do it. Same with Rojava. Um, if there's ever usually a story that's meant to, at least to, as far as, like, if it's aimed at me, to discredit Rojava, the socialist, libertarian socialist Kurds um, of northern Syria, um, it's usually in the form of, but they are committing ethnic genocide. They're, they're, they're oppressing non-Kurds or, or Christians, or, or they're doing something that's shady or that's oppressive. And that's somehow meant to tell me that it's a failure. They're no longer a pure libertarian anarchist kind of society with their cantons, their governments. They're somehow just as bad as every other state. And they're just like any other authoritarian state now. Absurd. And so is, and this isn't just a leftist conversation here, this is across all of American politics of, like, oh, you leftists, you're talking about revolution and how you have to do violence to do it. Well, guess what, uh, Chud? Um, in order to do democracy, you also need quite a lot of violence, right? Because you have dissenters against our system, whether they be internal or external, <laughs> Uh, we just label them different types of enemies or degenerates or people with an issue that just is innate, can't be solved, can't be addressed, can't be responded to rationally. And you'll see this in, in the most liberal voices about war and empire and defending things. And in the name of free speech, we must put down Antifa or these, these leftist groups. In the name of freedom, we must create sedition laws and destroy parties, and so on. Because they call for over overthrow of the government, or violent overthrow, right? And that's a crime. And it was a crime when this country was created as well, uh, when America was founded at the same time. With genocide, and war, and civil war, expelling all the Tories. And that was somehow, that was all morally righteous. But if you try to do it again, but I'm talking about communism here, I'm talking about socialist movements and general strikes, um, asserting a sort of independence from private capital, from the capitalist class. Let's finish up this video then. Ones that have successful revolutions, the ones that have lifted millions into literacy and a dignified existence, the ones that defeated the Nazis and invented space travel, the ones that supported countless revolutionary and national liberation struggles worldwide and whose absence is still sorely felt to this day. The ones that succeeded because they didn't shy away from the use of authoritarian means as they are the only means of success. Had it not been so, Aliendis Chile would have worked out. So what's my advice? Drop this nonsense. By virtue of advocating for revolution, you are, by definition, authoritarian. At the same time, everything that requires social change is at some level also authoritarian. So also, again, if you support the American government, you're also kind of an authoritarian. Even though, but I, I suppose the caveat is, our government is so decentralized that you cannot possibly be authoritarian if you support the Constitution or the U.S. government. Uh, but tell that to everybody who has a cop's foot on their neck.
So with that, I'll end the first half of the show. In the second half, we'll continue all of this. But otherwise, uh, thank you for joining me. Um, this is the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. Um, check us out on Facebook, Three Left Show, and Twitter, and uh, eventually on Macedon servers. Uh, what else? Um, I have a Patreon. Uh, this is technically my job now, um, though it doesn't have, I don't consider it, but it, I, well, I do kind of consider it my job. So please, uh, if you like, if you think this is a valuable labor I'm doing, please donate, uh, or become a member of the community radio station, WCAA. Um, but donate to my Patreon, uh, which is Three Left Show, uh, to help me in that way. Thank you. I don't check my privilege at being gay I just wanted bricks of windows While screaming at the state I like to tell racist jokes And make fun of the queers I'm not a Baptist type Cause I've been doing this for years I think it's okay Cause my grandpa was a Jew I'm a better manarchist than you I scope out women Or just their tits and ass And I think that all oppression is limited to class I'll mansplain to anyone who thinks I may be wrong Because they all should know that I knew better all along All you butthurt women, you just haven't got a clue I'm a better manarchist than you I talk too much at meetings, I always jump the stack And I shut down other people who try to hold me back All your whining about oppression, I think it is a bore Because I've read Bakunin, my opinions matter more I think you're so divisive with your gender points of view I'm a better manarchist than you I don't believe in sexism except the other way Cause I've always fought misandry since I became an MRA You hate feminazis who want it with us But I feel so much better since I joined Anonymous I think that matriarchy is a threat to me and you I'm a better manarchist than you I'm a better manarchist than you
had a mission You fulfill it or betray it And the next one does the same This is our time The work in This is our generation We got the insight and motivation To take it somewhere new We are catalysts and builders We are diggers and tillers Not just dreamers but fulfillers With the tools to get there Uh, welcome to the three last show, the second hour. Um, I'm discussing different leftist tendencies, how they conflict, and really how they may not conflict. Synthesis can be created. Um, and that was kind of mentioned in other times. Obviously, uh, I try to build all the conversations together. Everything's growing. I'm always trying to change up what I present and how I present it, particularly. Um, those that don't are boring to me and sad and... I have an example of this. Uh, one of the top podcasters, or was, uh, Dan Carlin. Maybe I'm misremembering. Maybe it's a complete fiction in my mind. But it was in 2016, or after Trump won, he stopped doing his current affairs common sense show. Maybe I should check to see if he started it up again. But I remember him saying, like, I have nothing more to contribute. You know, I, I just have more I can say. I do not understand what is happening. Like I said, he didn't have, he has lost hope. Hope is the ability to understand what is happening or react to it effectively or intelligently to understand. And he lost that ability because he's from his own biases, which, which he has trouble identifying, but it's basically a bias for constitutionality, for the institutions of America, for free speech and individualism. Even when that, those values seem to hamper our ability, uh, not hamper, destroy our ability to intelligently react to a pandemic. Right, You leave it up to individual choice, you get people saying it's my choice to not wear a mask. Or if you leave it up to people's comfort level uh, and convenience, then, and this is something I mentioned in our own community, you can be wearing a mask, but if you have your nose out, or if it, the mask dips below your nose, it's becoming, it's ineffective. It must cover both mouth and nose. Otherwise, you're, it's still going airborne. And that is what is effective, is about Reducing the tra the amount going airborne. And being outside means less of it is going to be airborne or in one place, but being inside means it's going to stay in place. Uh, unless you have really good ventilation, meaning windows are open or something like that. Uh, which, you know, in the wintertime is, is even more difficult or happening even more than in summertime where, you know, we have our hygienically sealed buildings and building systems, which are just terrible. And that's why gyms and other facilities just couldn't open at all, because it was going to be airborne no matter what. But anyway, one, one particular topic that I've been itching to hit all year, and it's been talked to death almost in other um, YouTube channels and circles and podcasts. But anyway, the other, the other side is um, the kind of the theory side uh, that I kind of mentioned earlier, the class, what is called class reductionism. Now, there is kind of a battle in the American left, at least, of class reductionism versus intersectionality, as if these two things are incompatible or somehow contradictory. And the way that the, criticize, the criticizers of the class reductionist, so what is it? It, it? Let's see if I can summarize it before I start going into this article. The charge is that those that are class reductionists are activists that are saying that identity, sexuality, gender expression, these things are not important in comparison to class struggle, the 
the battle between haves and have-nots is one between holders of capital, capitalists, corporate CEOs, and workers. Meeting people's needs, particularly that say the needs of black people, queer people, etc., starts with that struggle. Can't really achieve anything else until you kind of achieve that success. The other side is, no, these different communities' identities have different needs, right? Queer people need certain facilities. Black people have different actual cultural needs. And so does everyone who's not black. But really, these needs are kind of fulfilled with stuff, you know. Uh, if, if every neighborhood gets a community center, then what they do with that community center and its funding stream is up to them. And they can fulfill their needs, you know, whether it's a little bit more or a little bit less. And that can be determined democratically, or rather, based on need. Redistribute according to need, not to greed. Or uh, need for shareholder dividends. But is this difference really meaningful? All right, so let's start with from Left Voice, which is an Australian leftist. And so I think the, the conflict doesn't start in any particular place, but let's say for the sake of keeping our head on straight, that it starts with people, say, in the DSA, saying that there are these labor organizers that say that organizing labor comes first, right? It doesn't matter if you're Filipino, white, that what really breaks down racism and classism in America is the engagement that these things do not matter in comparison to the fact that they are workers, both nurses fighting management. And that's how we get people to be less racist and less classist. Not less classist, of course, against capitalist class. But what I mean is to recognize that there are classes and that uh, instead of being racist, maybe you should be classist. Um, but that, again, arguments abound. So this one's titled, Class Reductionism is Real, but it's coming from the Jacobin wing of the DSA. Because there, there were folks in the DSA saying that there, there are these labor organizers or like a, a certain Adolf Reed and that they are class reductionists, all right, because they say these things. But this one kind of makes us, um, kind of turns it around, but also kind of makes the same, uses the same rhetoric so, so we can kind of get at what is the problem here. The Jacobin wing of the DSA tends towards class reductionism. This is a big problem for the largest socialist organization in the country. The black-led uprising against police violence and institutional racism has brought this issue to the fore and presents an opportunity to rectify it. Now, unlike sometimes I'm other reading things, I'm always reading things from a place of good faith, so I'm going to read it in sort of a matter-of-fact tone, like, like I agree with it, or it's with my voice. But I want to at least put in front of this one that I'm reading it more to give the state the position not to agree with it. I don't, I'm saying it to tell, uh, to share it, to share that this is a position that exists. Then I will share two other articles that are completely like, but let's, let's get at it. Um, so the, it's stating this writer, let's see, is um, a, a Tatiana Quirazelli. This is in June states that the DSA has a problem with class reductionism. So I, I was trying to figure out if, uh, this is, I'm thinking this is one of those, like the saying that there are people who have this problem, uh, activists who do, you know, activism based on identity, 
like say Black Lives Matter or queer stuff. And they're, they say, they claim they're being intersectional. But if anyone isn't as intersectional as them, they are class reductionist and they are, that's a, that's a, if that's a problem because they're ignoring the importance of our identities. Now, I don't mean the whole DSA. I don't mean everyone in the DSA. I don't even mean most people in the DSA. In fact, I'm in the New York City DSA chapter and do work with their socialist feminist working group, which is not at all class reductionist. But, see, so it's, it's some people. But in the DSA, a national organization, has a problem with this thing called class reductionism, a problem with attracting members of color and a big problem with relating to current black-led movements in the streets. Regardless of the great work of particular chapters, working groups, or individuals, this severely limits and slows the participation of the DSA in the current uprising and diverts the organization's efforts away from its purported goals to fight for socialism and against oppression. Now, this kind of makes a lot of sense if you're kind of looking at things on a face value. For example, let's say in a local locality, in a particular place, you have DSA chapter that's doing organizing, and they want to do coalition work with uh, BLM groups of various types. And then and why are there different BLM groups? Well, we'll get into that in the Hood Communist piece. But um, they're actually not working together that well. Why is that? Well, this explains in this way. Uh, the problem primarily, though not exclusively centered around the sectors of the DSA leadership grouped around Jacobin Magazine, for one, members of Jacobin-affiliated Bread and Roses, formerly the Spring Caucus, formerly Momentum, <laughs> the occupy positions in the national and local leadership. But Jacobin's leadership goes beyond this. As the largest socialist publication in the U.S., referring to Jacobin, with 2 million hits per month, it plays a central role in organizing the DSA Along in, it's an ideology. They're the, they're the thought leaders. The latest iterations of the DSA's class reductionism keeps using this phrase uh, as if it's like they're not identifying as this, right? They would say this doesn't exist, just like how authoritarian socialism doesn't really exist. It's really just semantics about how you do regime change or change of government. Electing a new president is not a change in government, as many will see and have seen. And when you elect a new government, the policy doesn't change, right? When Obama was elected, one of the like uh, the, the kind of myths was that it, the Gitmo would close because one of the problems with the Bush administration was Guantanamo Bay and the abuses there. But did, was Gitmo closed? No! And thus, we can predict that the, the, migra- the camps at the border with the kids in cages will persist and the success will be spun as the long drawn out process of uh finding their parents or something like that or finding foster homes which previous government was well the trump administration was saying they were doing <laughs> no 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 comment on on how effective though the latest iteration of the dsa's class reductionism was an internal struggle around a panel featuring adolf reeve reed about how class reductionism doesn't exist but the roots of this problem run deeper and include, and I, I want to mention that I'm kind of pushing back against this because I've listened to Adolf Reed defend himself for a few hours. And I, you know, so I know where I, I kind of guess where he's coming from. I recommend uh, others do the same. 
But the roots of this problem run deeper and include the organization's refusal to take a strong stand against comp unions and its political focus on Bernie Sanders, who tends to reduce systemic racism to a merely economic issue. Not that he ever actually did that. I did. Um, But hey, maybe it's a matter of interpretation. If it wants to be an organization that fights for socialism, the DSA must recognize that capitalism and racism go hand in hand. Uh, It must separate itself from all class reductionism, as well as liberal identity politics, and take up wholeheartedly the current black-led uprising, lest the DSA become a predominantly white, left pressure group to the Democratic Party. Now, this is all well and good. But what's interesting about this is that this is kind of what like Adolf, like what, what the, this is a DSA member attacking other DSA members, not attacking, criticizing, but saying that there's, they're a problem or their, their attitude is a problem. And an attitude is probably what's really the issue here. Not so much the thoughts or the strategy, but just the attitude that they're having towards each other. Because Adolf Reed would say that this person is making everything about identity and doing the mentioned identity politics. Liberal identity politics, uh, which is represented by Kamala Harris, is a victory for all black women, even though argued she's not black because she's from just Jamaican descent, not slavery, slave descent. And that is a actual material difference between people of color in America that are descended from immigrants who came here mostly of their own volition, versus those who came here not of their own volition. What is class reductionism? So, this writer says, explains, the class reductionism is a belief that class causes all oppression, and in turn, that economic changes are enough to resolve all forms of oppression. Now, those that are that this is charged, you know, Adolf Reed said class reductionism doesn't exist. His argument is simply that it's a stereotype, or it's a it's an imposition, that uh, you're saying that class causes all oppression. I'm not saying that, but it's the most important part, uh, or it's the first thing that matters. That racism exists because class oppression exists. It's just, a, or it's a different form of it. It's not denying that these forms of oppression exist, though the intersectional theory comes into play in that the suppression happens in different levels. You know, the oppression of a queer black woman is more intense than that of a non-queer black woman uh, or queer man. Can You know, it can be a log cabin Republican and be just as pro-status quo as any other old white man. Um, but he's, uh, but yeah, and, that, and that's different than a queer black man who is literally going to be ostracized from his family and, thus ha- and, and not have any of the resources to actually survive or can survive being ostracized. Even a cursory look at the work of Marx and early Marxist thinkers demonstrates that this is categorically untrue. Um, Sorry, I skipped a bit. There's a caricature of the debate between Marxists and identitarians. Advocates of ID politics say gender. Marxists respond class. ID politicos say gender and race. Marxists respond class and class. (laughs) Identitarians say gender, race, sexuality, disability. Marxists say class, 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 class. I don't know what she's describing because when Marxists are taken on good faith, that's not what they're saying at all. So here's where it's like, they're describing a real problem the way they see it, but I, it's not matching up with the conversation I'm seeing in lit 
in literature and in interviews and and when it, and if they're put in the same room to debate it'll become entirely semantic like a matter of a battle of words and not what they're actually saying or interpretation of what they're saying even a cursory look at the work of Marx and early Marxist thinkers demonstrates that this is untrue. Rather than an interaction between oppression and the economic structure, have always played an important role in Marxist analysis. In Communist Manifesto itself, Marx takes up the oppression of women without reducing it to just a question of class. Lenin's book, What is to be Done, in many ways, is a discussion against class reductionism, discouraging socialists from only focusing on narrow economic demands. And Leon Trotsky strongly encouraged James Cam Cannon to take up black struggle in the Socialist Workers Party in the U.S. He corresponded regularly with C.L.R. James, who was a black Trotskyist, an important historian who analyzed black oppression and struggle from Marx's perspective. However, it is true that there are currents in Marxism which did become class reductionist, and these strains had a massive influence on the history of socialism. Eugene Debs, a leader of the Socialist Party in the 20th century, made many important contributions to socialist movements. However, on the issue of race and socialism, he said, at one particular time, there is no Negro question outside of the labor question. The real issue is not social equality, but economic freedom. The class struggle is colorless. Similarly, Stalin, which viewed queer people as petty bourgeois deviants, and attempted, and it's not just him, this is just regular chauvinism that exists in the world all over the place. Uh, the Soviet state was pretty chauvinist, and thus anti-queer. And this brought class reductionism back to the socialist movement, you know, the fight between um, Trotskyists and Stalinists. But is this not just a misinterpretation of a one quote? To say that, like, there's no Negro question, because the question at the time was... Of should we have integrated unions? And he's basically saying that there's no question, of course. Right? Or maybe he did mean it doesn't matter if they're in integrated or segregated. Uh, what matters is that everyone's in a labor union. So that is a problem because it does matter whether they're segregated or not. And, and that was a problem with that in the past. And there is a projection or reality that that current still exists, that there are these labor organizers that see organizing people as being the most important thing, labor or like labor organizing and not organizing, say for against police brutality. But this is, a, um, not stereotype, a, a fantasy. What they're saying is in, in, by, in their own words is, you can't fight against police oppression without being organized in your workplace. You know, with strong labor unions, we can then beat back the cop unions. Uh, by beat back, I mean exert more political influence than they do. And thus, cities can then adopt more restorative justice and erode prison, uh, the school prison pipeline and all that stuff. But people have to be organized along some line first. So then it becomes a battle of do we organize around identity or work? And accepting, which we all seem to do, that economics do matter, where your income comes from matter, and whether you have an income matters. So that's evidence for organizing via work comes first. But ah, in my last episode, I ended with uh, a... A green or a leader, a co-founder of Greenpeace in Canada, 
that made the case for an argument, uh, for politics of place. That we should be are maybe organizing by neighborhood. Because after all, you can live next to your neighbor, but you could all be working in different directions, different parts of town. You all live in the same place. And at the same time, um, in the, you know, Black Rose Federation's piece, they're talking about how you organize along your workplace, where you live, where you go to school. That these are all options. And that there's no wrong answers. So in tackling the class reductionism question or the problem in the DSA is maybe they're all right. By all right, I don't mean it's all good, man. I mean, they're all correct in certain ways or they're all correct at the same time. No one's particularly wrong. And that it's simply an attitude that these other people doing this other thing are a problem. That their focus on labor organizing first in workplaces, is taking away or harming the organizing by identity. I would argue these can happen at the same time. But then, then, okay, then the argument maybe becomes, we all organize at the same time in these different silos, but that's what's made the left so weak. That instead of organizing along one axis, like labor, where we work, uh, or place where we are in our neighborhood and thus but we've we've um we're ignoring the bigger picture and that's what's made the left weak so that so then it kind of becomes like well i guess we have to synthesize these two ways together somehow let's see if we can explore that uh going forward let's see so on the other hand identity politics which arose so you know this writer is of course also nuanced as well so Mentioning that, you know, there are these labor-centric problems. And then, on the other hand, identity politics, which arose and gained strength in the past few decades, neoliberal era, um, it makes class all but disappear, often conflating exploitation and oppression, which are overlapping but different things. In identity politics, the struggles become cultural and rhetorical rather than material or structural. In capitalism, as a system based on exploitation of the working class majority, or the hyper-exploitation of the oppressed formerly colonized, they all become invisible. The Democratic Party has taken up this liberal identity politics. It cynically pretends to be on the side of oppressed people while maintaining the system of oppression and exploitation. In its worst alliterations, it looks like Kamala the cop pretending she's on the side of black people. In the face of uh, liberal identity politics, not to be confused with socialist identity politics, which is what this person does, or what BLM does, which uphold the capitalist system, the solution is not to turn away from politics around the oppression of black people, women, or trans, uh, but instead, socialists must do as Lenin suggested, and, uh, quoting him, react to every manifestation of tyranny and oppression, no matter where it appears. So thus, so, but if tyranny is in the workplace, you organize the workplace and you say we should organize workplaces. And again, the quote-unquote quote class reductionists do not say only organize workplaces. Ignore all identity. When they criticize, like Adolf Reed criticizes identity politics, they are talking about the same liberal identity politics that this person is. You know, Kamala the cop. Jailing parents for truancy rather than ensuring that the schools are well-funded. 
which isn't her responsibility, not her job. Again, um, there are problems, but she can't do anything about it. In other words, socialists should be able to show that there is no liberation in capitalism. A working-class socialist revolution is a path towards liberation of all oppressed working-class people. But she has a problem with these the class reductionists like the Bread and Rose Caucus. They, they say they, they have a theory of class-wide demands. And so where it does kind of seem to rubber hits the road is that you have these class reductionists that say we need to only put forward demands that are economic, you know, like Bernie Sanders. Except that Bernie Sanders, by pressure from socialist identity politics, I guess, non-liberal, would also include your um, restorative justice planks that you do the class-based, you know, labor demands, and you do the identity demands, that they, they don't cancel each other out. But there are some people that seem to argue about them, like, only, or in their pieces they do, and seem to dismiss the identity-based ones. For example, in Jacobin, Brianna Gray, in her piece, Beware the Race Reductionist. So again, there's class reductionists. Oh, but there's also race reductionists which are almost universally quoted in discussions of the class-wide demand. Brianna Gray says, the principal beneficiaries of universal policies would be poor and working-class people who would disproportionately be black and brown. Dismissing such policies on the grounds that they aren't addressing systemic racism is a side of hand. A blank and gong interpret this to mean that supposedly race-blind policies like Medicare for All and a federal jobs guarantee, as Gray rightly argues, actively work to undo both the effects and causes of racism. In other words, the fight for policies for the working class, like Medicare for All, is actually a fight against the effects and causes of racism. So what's the problem? It's true people of color are disproportionately affected by a lack of health insurance and would greatly benefit from Medicare for All. Gray, who is primarily arguing against liberal identity politics, is correct to say that we shouldn't diminish these policies. Instead, we have to support them. However, Class-wide demands are insufficient to address the particular oppression of black folks. We have to talk about the legacy of slavery, current discrimination, racist police violence. We have to talk about the fact that in a racist society, the implementation of class-wide demands is executed in a racist way, denying benefits to people of color just like the GI Bill did, like the New Deal and the Wagner Act and the Social Security Act did. Jacobin is right to focus on uniting the working class, a working class that is black, brown, and queer, as well as straight, white, and cis. But in order to achieve this unity, we need to fight against every form of oppression as such. Racism is the strongest tool wielded by American capitalists to implement hellish conditions. So fighting against racism is also a class-wide demand. So the argument from this this writer, again, uh, Tatiana, is simply that there is a distinction without a difference. And that, you know, there are these people making a distinction. And then she seems to also make the distinction. Talks about Sanders. I'm going to skip that. Um, but that some of these class reductionists, uh, the, these people that are class-wide, asking for class-wide demands, are bad on Black Lives Matter. Because then, because um, in the DSA, they, um, let's see, there's some stuff where they uh, put a member of a comp uh, police union on the main board. And let's see, do you, let's see, here, here's the example. Furthermore, the DSA has a poor record on the issue of police and black struggle. A cop organizer was unknowingly voted into the national leadership in 2017. He had not disclosed 
that he had worked for the combined law enforcement associations. So it wasn't conscious, but it was unknowingly. Texas's largest police union, which represents 21,000 cops, DSA membership was correctly incensed. Although some members threatened a due strike and labor activists put out a dissenting statement, DSA National Political Committee did not kick out the former cop organizer. The members of the NPC, who were specifically associated with Jacobin Slate Momentum, voted to keep the cop organizer in leadership. So this is quite the slight to the quote-unquote identitarians. And then there's some ending paragraphs. Let's see, where do we go from here? After Sanders' defeat, an article by Paul Heinerman and Jacobin set up a binary choice. Always a bad move. Bernie Sanders is out of the race, but we can't retreat to the subcultural politics that were hegemonic on the left before the campaign began, as if there's like some pre- and post-Bernie Sanders left. (laughs) I do not consider Bernie Sanders to be the dividing line, but, you know, for many uh, new leftists like my co-host, he is very important um, to their uh, political identity or their politics. So maybe... I'm being dismissive. Let's see. In the midst of the uprising in the Democratic Party, yeah, right, DSA members receive countless emails on the daily basis telling us that the future of the movement is at the polls. In this sense, some sectors of the DSA are doing the work of the Democratic Party, especially since that's who they're endorsing, asking us to take the movement to the polls for a capitalist party. They could do so for a non-capitalist party. But other anarchists, again, would argue that that's not really a distinction without difference. In a sense, Hyderman is right. It is time for mass politics, but not the type that Jacobin is suggesting. There are mass politics going on in the streets right now, with hundreds of thousands in primarily working-class youth taking part. You know, BLM. Our mass politics should help organize national and international protests for black lives. We should organize a national campaign to get cops out of our unions. It's time to build Black Lives Matter assemblies in our workplaces, schools, and neighborhoods. So, so that's where I'm like, so the Black Lives Matter assemblies. But that's primarily just identity-centric. And that excludes and leaves out the working-class component that's needed in the conversation. So here's where it's like they're suggesting one particular thing, but maybe they're not suggesting everybody do it, but that this needs to happen. But no, I mean, by the rhetoric, they are suggesting that every nominal socialist needs to be participating in a BLM assembly. But when we attempt to do so in our own organizations, we're told to, we're not welcome. Because, hey, they need to be safe spaces. They need to be black-centered spaces. And the best way to do that is to is to keep those that are white, light-skinned out. Which I'm not like, say, like, I'm not being a little snowflake about it. But I'm like, okay, fine, you do your movement, but we want to collaborate when we do labor organizing, right? Not to mention that these BLM assemblies can then do their own labor organizing. But like I said, it's it's the the sentence is Oh yeah, yeah, assemblies in our workplaces, schools, and neighborhoods. As if this is all like the same thing. Or like you could do all of that at the same time and there's still Black Lives Matter assemblies. I mean if if you're having an assembly at your workplace, isn't that a labor assembly? Isn't that for union organizing? But what it would be for black lives, right? In the name of black lives. It's like you're holding a little BLM rally in your workplace instead of in front of City Hall, which would be place based. I'm puzzling this out. 
super, super interesting, like, distinction here. I mean, maybe there's some philosophy and knowledge that needs to go in, but, but then there's just, there's a practicality element of it, of, you know, when you have a, that things need to be contextual. Like, if you're doing something at a workplace, it needs to be labor focused. Like, otherwise, like, because everyone who's in that workplace, they live in different places. They come from different backgrounds. Can they all unite around black lives? I would probably suggest, of course, they should, right? We need to unite for black lives if we're going to have any kind of justice. Socialist movement will, must include, and maybe even, but I think the argument is, does it start with BLM, right? Can you start with BLM and then include class struggle and labor organizing? This has not manifested. So this is where, like, you know, she says this, and then in practice, you have really good people on the ground that are not, like, fitting in these categories of identity or they're not race or class reductionists, right? But they're doing a particular activism um, that's based around Black Lives Matter, Black Lives, and criminal justice reform, not labor reform. But at the same time, you got the union, uh, nurses' unions, organizing and trying to get contracts, and they're multi-ethnic, and and they're showing up the BLM march. In this sense, we need a strong socialist organization fighting for socialist revolution, because within capitalism there is no liberation. It is time for mass politics, but as the current movement demonstrates, mass politics don't need to be around so-called class-wide demands. We can unite the working class and oppressed on a massive scale. So her suggestion is that we're not going to build oh, this mass movement around a demand for Medicare for all. It will be around the things that, like BLM, which seems to be staking a position of identity first. And that's where the so-called class reductionists will say, no, you are being a racial essentialist here by saying that, we have to save black lives before we can save anyone else's life. But when I'm out trying to organize labor unions, they're not, they're not being turned off just because they're racist. It's because they're not included in the engagement. Cause the engagement of whether or not like a socialist org is engaging them or not is based around black lives matter, not class struggle, which is as far as the labor organizers go, how you actually make people less racist um, by pointing out that why are the cops so violent? Because they're protecting property, because they're protecting profits, because it's profitable to do so. So there's a lot of overlaps and stuff, and that's what's kind of interesting and cool about all this to me. Uh, so that took entirely too long um, due to my over-explaining so maybe in my live stream that I'll do sometime this week, I will wrap this up, and then with that audio, I can probably add that into the podcast midweek, Thursday or so. That will be released. So that'll be a good goal. So the rest of the time, uh, I'm going to scoot over to Hood Communist. Uh, what's his name? Jesse Chase. The article's name is, or the blog post, is Values of Conquest Over Personal Freedom Today. This is also published in July. So all these pieces I've saved from the summer. So here's where he, and here it is for uh, this man, Jesse. So first of all, 
Land, food, medicine, and the individual are four main properties that form the matrix of conquest according to scientific socialism. Trademark. Land is first. Food is second. Third is medicine and health and healthcare. And the fourth is the effects of the three previous rectified properties imposed on the well-being of a person. First, we'll start with the fourth, well-being and personal access. Efforts and solidarity of people seeking and wanting a better world. But the mass solidarity of what many people in the West think of revolution is not such. For example, BLM is not a revolutionary organization. Protest as ritual is not a revolution in itself. Taking to the streets is a liminal front line for urban guerrilla revolution. I'm using the word revolution entirely too much in this uh, program. I apologize, but let's just say... Uh, it's a stand-in word for social change or justice or government reform, so on. Uh, many, many things. But BLM as an organization has no training cadres, no centralization, no cohesive ideology for a decentralized network. Like American politics, it's all so decentralized. It's an identity-based movement and has come to liberal opportunism and careerism for professional activists. Its mobilization melts into the orchestrated anarchy of the geopolitical spectacle. Since the resurgence of protests in 2020, after people stopped giving a bleep about the COVID quarantine house arrest that came after global protests about 2019, there have been efforts to organize beyond the well-done looting, well-do looting and destruction of corporate property, like the improvised Seattle Chaz site that took over a police station a few city blocks, or the black militias and gun clubs that have been protecting their communities and standing against white supremacy. Maybe there are a few factions and organizations we haven't heard of yet, similar to MOVE, the Young Lords, the Black Panther Party, the Black Panthers Clubs, and the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, Republic of New Africans, Malcolm X, and the NOI to that extent. Even some kind of network of cooperative economics that will be as expansive as the UNIA was. An organization requires infrastructure and shared commonality and ideology of something in order to work together and move forward. The Haitian Revolution was organized. There are places like Cooperation Jackson, Jackson, Mississippi, that have been consistently building an anti-capitalist city, acquiring assets and equity for their community in a self-sustainable industry of worker-owned co-ops. What movements like BLM and Antifa do is mobilization and protest as ritual because of liberal obsession with, a, with a, the symbolism versus organization. That means an ideological infrastructure and the management of it. You can't go to war broke. These days you can't organize with zero dollars, and there is no revolution without an organization and a shared ideology or commonality, as he said in the last paragraph. Kwame Trué emphasized this again and again. And so if there's no organization, what's it going to be? Anarchy, communalism-type living, or just pre-capitalist, off-the-land life? No labels. Sounds good. I'm also writing this to help clear up a conflict noticed among BLM protest-goers and supporters. That there is the heteronormative versus queer identity politics within BLM, and the world at large being stifled by the heteronormative Christian brainwashing that the, I know it uses LGBTQS2 members. I'm going to use queer as a stand-in for that acronym. 
Christian brainwashing that the queer members of our communities are part of a greater agenda to effeminate black men. Although the queer agenda seems to be embraced by the white capitalist mainstream media, the community itself is divided by more queer people who are still often white, rich, and racist, as is often proven in the hyper-capitalist spectacle of pride parades, corporate sponsorship. Homosexuality is well-documented and traditional to the five genders that existed before Christian colonization. This includes cultures across Africa, First Nations from Canada all the way down to Chile, across Asia, and Europe. So there's nothing white supremacist about it. This plays into the management of a household and a nuclear family as the principal site of capitalist reproduction because it is there that the free labor of child care is exploited uh, to breed the next generation of laborers. Queer communities as well as queer and hetero polyamorous families can break down these exploitations by providing networks of complex interpersonal family orgs that benefit the need of communities. Needless to say, this is all happening with some networks of nuclear families that traditionally live in communes with friends, or uh, it occurs in intergenerational households with grandparents, uncles and aunties, and people adopted into it. This sequentially all plays into distraction and attention economy. The drumo is speed and politics. It goes down the same in the community organizations where there are social innovators, politicians, academics, and the community organizations themselves that seemingly poverty pimping and throwing out a couple hundred thousand dollars so that the petty bourgeois orgs can squabble over crumbs and maintain a status quo with another band-aid over the most recent bullet wounds. They are most often willingly or unwillingly the managerial class that profits off, you know, with real estate, and curates community dysfunction and disintegration until gentrification can move in. And what's happening now? To these communities around the world, land and water defenders, community leaders and activists being threatened and assassinated, there's no messiahs. J. Edgar Hoover wanted them all dead. Not that we need a Messiah anyway, but still, marginalized and poor communities face more death because of economics. Healthy people aren't profitable. Oh, oh class reductionism. <laughs> Why is this all happening? No matter if COVID was released intentionally or not, because this is apparently an open question to some, uh, or not, does not exempt the fact that the world governments have never had so much control over people. And why wouldn't the media give attention to BLM while they parade identity politics as the puppet of the global capitalist power shifts taking place? We all saw how quickly the shelves at the grocery store emptied when uh, COVID first hit. Just a glimmer of the immediacy and chaos that would ensue if there was no food to restock. There was... There has been Chinese conquest of land used for farming around the world in Brazil, Canada, U.S., and Africa. China owns 5% around 1 trillion of America's 24 trillion debt. China is second to Japan, who owns 1.2 trillion of that debt. The American dollar is the first global currency. All the oil in the world is still traded with it, but its empire is ending and new powers are taking place. China legitimately wants to become a new global currency. Maybe the superpowers will make sure no currency ever becomes a global one anymore. A new germaphobe and cashless society is not difficult to speculate. The wars over energy, over oil, are the linchpins to the global banking cartels. Eurasia is a site of new exploitation for Russian and Chinese trade, new pipelines, 
all the while elite pedophiles conduct human trafficking and suspect Clintons, the Gates, Trump, Glislaine Maxwell, Prince Andrew, Woody Allen, Harvey Weinstein, to name a few, all friends of the Epstein. Epstein. This is all documented, cold, hard fact, truth, not conspiracy. The president of the United States of America is such a pedophile. Bill Clinton and his wife have been to Epstein's Pedo Island, yada, yada, going through that. It has been 500 years of raping and murder. The oil extraction project sites are havens for self-trafficking and the countless missing and murdered indigenous women. And after the violence, the primary motive behind the conquest of land, oil, and resources. So this is so so that little statement there is kind of a tying into of all of this cultural, you know, rape, gender and sexual violence is kind of wrapped up with and it's kind of just a tool of conquest of land, of the economics. So he's centering economics as primary here and that's this is the class reductionist position. So I'm I'm sharing this as a counterpoint but also a kind of addendum to the half-hour conversation I just had about that. Uh, let's skip to last paragraph. Some people already live like that, meaning like hunter-gatherers, and already by nature. For many, it will require class suicide and sacrifice, as Amakar Kabel called for. In the solidarity of class sacrifice, people would find a divine reason and pledge to the earth and to revolution, which is ultimately a preservation of the sacred that is the earth and life on it. Through the oppression for it necessarily involves a lived wager of implicated... Oh, boy, that's a mouthful. Let's skip ahead. To free the land of the oil economy, it's perverted executives. There have been plans developed by members of the um, Sipapec First Nation, those resisting colonial oppression, that's what land back refers to, and pipeline expansion to restructure the economy based off of hemp. Hemp can do anything petroleum oil can do, and it's sustainable, thus better for the environment. Well, it's regrowable anyway. You can make car and plane bodies, plastics, houses with hempcrete, hempcrete with all hemp, um, clothing, food, batteries, medicine from hemp. This is why hemp is banned. So, you know, he's, so he's tying together a bunch of kind of talking points about, you know, the wonders of hemp, uh, the, um, not conspiracy, but the, you know, existence of pedophile culture in our, uh, ruling class. Uh, he ties a bunch of things together and, and, and of course, class based critique of, you know, what BLM does or how they do it. Now, what they do, of course, the, the, the cause is just, it's just that, you know, the question of like, aren't, aren't they just playing into the spectacle? Right. And, and this, and this is from the sixties onward. Like, you know, you create a spectacle because that's how mass media works. Um, uh, but we all kind of know and complain about how mass media kind of makes us dumber and more isolated and all that stuff. So maybe we should all be rejecting that and rejecting the mass, you know, protest as spectacle and, and and do the hard work of organizing. And that's kind of what the current plan for me is. Um, I have a personal five-year plan, but uh, making one-year plans as far as organizations go is also tre bono. You know, each mission, each generation is responsible to discover their mission, fulfill it, or betray it. That's been used in a, now I'll play a song that uses that lyric. This is why we must fight with a plan for the future, live with purpose. A one-year plan, a two-year plan, five or ten-year, etc. We must historically prepare for this future, or there will be no future. And we humans will be purged from this world as the earth heals itself and restores balance. Get out of the city. 
At least plan to have somewhere to go, a commune, a farm, ready accessible to you and your community. Have access to fresh water, guns, and ammo. There has never been a modern revolution without gunfire. Don't be naive, but be safe. Organize. Be informed. Be prepared. Free the land. Hashtag land back. First, my profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories, topics, or rantings you message on Facebook, Twitter at 3 Left Show. You can also email at 3 Left Show at Gmail. This program is made as a part of independent community radio. So support us materially, along with other producers and citizen journalists, with a donation or membership to WCAALP at grandarts.org. Capitalism doesn't value this work, so to support myself personally, become a member of my Patreon, which is also at 3 Left Show. Support the show with your time by telling others you believe would be interested, liking and sharing and checking in on our social media pages, as word of mouth is our best advertising. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps like Stitcher, Apple Store, and Google Play. But a full archive of the podcast, along with links, sources, and notes, are found at 3lefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice yourself. So be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the 3 lefts.